We'll turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, we're going to be in verses 1 through 10 this morning. How many of you ever heard of the, uh, the Christian century? Well, good for you. Christian Century is a, uh, we're going to do air quotes, uh, Christian magazine uh, that was so liberal that another magazine had to come along and defend the inerrancy of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture. And the magazine that did that was Christianity Today. Now, Christianity Today, as of this morning, uh, had on their website articles such as White Brothers and Sisters, we need to recognize our discomfort and deal with it. And articles like What We've Gotten Wrong About God and His Love. It was not a good understanding of that question. You wonder how can how can an organization, a paper that started with the express purpose of defending scripture, now deny it. Organizations are one thing, but churches are another. I think of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a staunch preacher, defender of the gospel. He served as the pastor of First Congregational Church in Northampton, Massachusetts, on two occasions, fired both times. You take someone like Edwards who's had such a lasting impact on Christianity. And those those times that he served that church, you would think certainly that church is going to uh, persevere. That church is going to endure. And today is still standing strong, wouldn't you think? Right now you have the First Churches of Massachusetts. It's a combination of the first congregational church that Jonathan Edwards led, the first Baptist church. They merged together in 1988 because they were both so small, they could not afford uh, to keep themselves up. Now they boast on their website that their union has many, many aspects, many features that are celebrated. And they say this, another notable feature of the historic first churches of Northampton is their connection with the famous First Great Awakening preacher, Jonathan Edwards. Sounds good, right? One of the pastors, however, while explaining in great deal other parts of the church's history, shied away from traditional connections with Edwards, even flat out stating that they did not prescribe to Edwards' most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. This piece, influential to and representative of the Great Awakening, uh, depicted the desperate state of humanity in vivid and graphic terms, greatly distinct from the progressive theology proclaimed by the community today. Things have changed. You look at a church like London Metropolitan Tabernacle, which Spurgeon led, Faithfully for so many years, by 1970, they could barely fill two pews with people. How does sound doctrine from a church disappear within a generation or two? I got to tell you, we're blessed here. 
we have a church that is built upon solid theological foundation. Amen? And you've not only got elders that will fight to defend that theology, but a body that is willing and able and ready to fight. We want to defend. We want to articulate the truth of Scripture. Not only do we want to defend, but we want to continue to grow as a healthy, healthy place to be. I would can I would say that probably most of you came to your current reformed conclusions through a prolonged theological battle. I've heard so many of your stories where you wrestled, you uh, defended your positions against reformed theology, and you fought and you fought, and you finally were convicted. Scripture won the day. You fought with yourself, you argued with everyone around you, and you had to defend the conclusions that you'd reached. Many of you still have to defend your theological convictions. Every family dinner, when Scripture comes up, you have to defend why you believe what you believe. It's so ingrained in your heart and in your mind. It's part of who you are. After so many years, you become numb to the rejections and the uh, objections. And you, you are convinced and you are settled. It doesn't even bother you when people have questions anymore. You just handle them. The other day, we had co-op. And we were talking about soteriology. And we went through, and just a quick review, we asked the question, what does each letter of the tulip stand for? Our kids in this body could not answer that question. And I know for a fact that at least half of them have been rigorously taught all of those points. How does sound doctrine disappear from a church within a generation or two? There are any number of reasons why that happens, but I think that one reason is that the first generation, the adults in this room, begin to take for granted their theological convictions and assume that their children and their children's children are picking up on those convictions. We assume a passive role. Now, I'm not accusing any of you of taking a passive role. I feel like I've taken a fairly active role in teaching my children the Reformed Doctrine. The other family that I'm confident of, was Pastor Matt's family, I'm pretty sure that he's taught his children the Reformed Doctrines. But it's easy for those things to begin to slip from our mind. And for our weapons and our tools to become a little dull for lack of use. So I want to encourage you this morning. Let's not let the next generation fall into poor doctrine. Because we failed to be diligent in teaching them. This morning is not an exposition of Ephesians 2. I call these topogenical sermons. We're going to be most of our time in Ephesians 2, but we'll, we'll rely on other passages for clarity. And let's 
see all the buses asking for apologizing for uh, topological sermons or topical sermons because she says you just do it. We all know you hate topical sermons. Just deal with it. But here's the thing: uh, it's one thing to listen to a sermon and think that there's going to be clear exposition and exegesis as you go, and then you're just disappointed the whole time. At least this way, you're disappointed up front, and you know what to expect. It's going to be a topical message. So um, she says I shouldn't qualify those things. I would never qualify. But if I were, I'd say something like that. Okay. In Ephesians, overall as a letter, there's disunity in the church of Ephesus. And Paul is writing to address that disunity. And he begins in chapter 1 with this grand picture of redemption. Okay? And chapter 1 starts in the heavens and in uh, time before time. And gradually, from chapter 1, verse 3, all the way to the end of chapter 3, he comes closer and closer uh, to home as he uh, hammers down the doctrine of salvation. What does salvation look like? And why is it the foundation for our unity? So after he's, he's established that we're predestined before the foundations of the earth, and he's spent the entire chapter just marveling at the, at the majestic beauty of salvation, we come to chapter 2, where we're going to be this morning. Beginning in verse 1, Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. That is a beautiful, beautiful passage. And were we to execute that, we would spend months upon months walking through those ten verses. This morning I want to give us just an overview of how we see the glorious gospel of grace, doctrine of grace, here in Ephesians 2. I chose Ephesians 2 this morning, but we could have easily picked any number of passages, because the doctrines of grace are not limited to a singular passage, are not uh, held by a cherry-picking proof text. They are the thread that runs through the entirety of Scripture, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. So this morning is about salvation. We're going to look at five points to help you understand salvation. You can think of them as five petals on a flower. Let's just say a tulip. First petal. Your depravity is radical. 
Your depravity is radical. Look at how Paul begins here. He, he, he's coming off the heights of God's own action in salvation. In chapter 1, everything is about God did this. Now it's time for Paul to turn his attention to what man does. And you were dead. Well, that didn't last long. Uh, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He immediately starts the fact that man is dead. Spiritually dead. Your depravity is radical. You were by nature a child of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We refer to this as total depravity. There's perhaps some confusion there because total depravity gives the idea that we are as bad as we could be. We are as sinful as we possibly could be. But that's not what we teach here. I like the way Boyce phrases this as radical depravity. That sin touches every aspect of our being. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. But we need to understand that right here, our understanding of depravity is the foundation upon which our entire soteriology stands. And you may say, well, hold on a second. No, the resurrection of Christ is the foundation. Yes, and you're right. It is the foundation of our salvation. But soteriology is a study of salvation and its application. For to understand salvation rightly and its application rightly, then we must not err in our understanding of depravity. We can't understand the cross. We can't understand resurrection correctly if we are in error on depravity. So, what do we mean? Like I said, we're not as sinful as we could be. That's not what we say when we say full depravity. We're saying that every aspect of our being has been touched by sin. Physically touched by sin. Mentally, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically. However, whatever way you want to break down the entirety of the human existence... That aspect of that being has been touched by sin. There is no good part of us. There is no pure part of us. There is nothing in us that we can present to God and say, look, this is good. We're spiritually dead. Think through that. Spiritually dead. Nothing good to offer. Paul is... It's pretty hard here, too. And very clear. We were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Because we were spiritually dead, and there's a huge chunk there between verse 1 and that last statement in verse 3. A huge chunk that describes our spiritual deadness. Followed the course of this world, followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and we all once lived in that, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. There's nothing to promote us. And then Paul concludes those heavy words. Remember now, he's just now turning his attention to what man brings to the table. Here is everything in chapter 1 that God brings to the table in salvation. Now what does man bring to the table? Nothing. And he concludes that statement, you're by nature children of wrath. And here he has two very hard realities that he confronts us with. First is that we are children of wrath. 
Will you want to be popular in culture today? Talk about the fact that we are children of wrath. That God is a wrath-filled God and that we are the proper objects of that wrath. But that is exactly what Paul says. But notice what he does not say. He does not say that we are children of wrath because we followed after the prince of the power of the air or followed after the course of this world or did any of the things in verses 2 and the first part of 3. He doesn't say that's why we're objects of God's wrath. He says that we are children of wrath like the rest of mankind by nature. That's even worse. You might be able to skirt by by saying that we are children of wrath. But when you say it's by nature, you are no longer popular. And I know that's what so many of you are concerned with. Our understanding here of depravity informs our understanding of the will. Okay? Paul teaches us that we're by nature children of wrath. So we have to understand depravity rightly because depravity is going to teach us and inform us how to understand our will, our desires, not the other way around. That's the problem that we have so many times in our culture, is it not? In our church culture, we don't start with the biblical doctrine of depravity start with the secular philosophy of will. We start with man's will. That's what Pelagius did. Pelagius let his understanding of the will inform how he viewed depravity. So he started from the assumption that man's will must be free from the influence of God. It was indeed to be free. So he concluded Adam's sin only affected him. No one else. After all, how could Adam represent anyone other than himself? So, because Adam's sin affected only him, those born after Adam are born in the same condition as he was. So, naturally, man can live without sin if he wants to. So, Pelagius concluded. We like to call that heresy. Not little h. Big H. Shining lies H. Heresy. He wildly underestimated the condition of man. Because he missed depravity, he missed the entire soteriological system. I like Augustine's response better. Man is not able not to sin. Anytime you can throw in a double negative, you're a winner. You can't not sin. That's what we do. Edwards is quite helpful here. He defined the will better than any theologian had to that point, I believe, since. He defined the will as that which the mind chooses to do. Oftentimes we view the will as being morally neutral. He says, no, the will is not morally neutral. It is corrupted by sin. Man always does what he wants. Always. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We are by our very nature the proper objects of God's wrath. 
Our depravity is radical. What was just heavy. If we were to look at that flower, we would again move to another petal. We would notice that our election is unconditional. Our election is unconditional. Paul, again, in, verse, in chapter 1, is pointing to all that God has done. Now what has man done? Man has provided nothing. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. If radical depravity is true, then this is the natural consequence. That election must be unconditional. If it's not true, then election must be conditional. If we do have something to offer, then our salvation must be built upon what we may offer. But if we have nothing to offer, our salvation is built entirely upon God's good favor, upon His grace. You see now how total depravity is the hinge upon which our soteriology turns? After all, what is it that dead men want? Dead men do to improve their condition. Nothing. We use this illustration in the of Charles Park. No end. To go up to the graveyard and invite one of those corpses alive. All you have to do is raise your hand and I'll pull you out of the grave. And not a one of them is going to do it. Because they're dead. We have a lot of gospel analogies that fail to understand that man is dead. The gospel's a life preserver. You're just drowning in the ocean and, and Jesus comes along and throws you a life preserver. All you have to do is grab it and pull you in. The problem is you're dead at the bottom of the ocean. You can't grab a preserver. God's taken 99 steps and you need to take the last one. Well, you're dead. You can't walk. The gospel's the medicine on the side of the table on your sick bed. Just reach out and take it. You can't. You're dead. Dead men don't take medicine. See, if man is incapable of creating the conditions of salvation, that leads us into a desperate position, doesn't it? What's the hope? I would contend that it is there and there only that there is hope. The other positions all depend on you making the right choice. Just, I'm just curious, how many of you, before you came to a reformed understanding of the gospel, made a profession of faith, came forward, you prayed a prayer, you signed a card, whatever the case may be, you raised your hand and you said, I see you there, now you're going to heaven. How many of you went through that experience and then in the days, weeks, and months that followed, you were tormented? Did I pray right? Did I say, did I say the right thing? Did I mean it enough? Did I, did I really, really mean it and then really, really mean that I meant it? Did I? How many of you went through that? Exactly. There's no hope there. But then when you realize I couldn't pray the right thing. I couldn't say the right thing. I couldn't do the right thing because I was spiritually dead. But God, through Christ Jesus, breathed life into me and indwelt me with His Holy Spirit. And now I am 
myself because of my confidence in God and the complete of the gospel of Christ. There's the hope. Amen? There is no hope when you're dependent upon yourself. There is only hope when you're trusting in the good grace of God. And the overwhelming teaching of Scripture is that of election. It's hard to turn to a page in Scripture that isn't pointing to God's electing purposes. It was this that was the final nail in my Arminian coffin. I fought, I railed, I debated, I argued, I redefined, I would read script. I wanted to know what Scripture said. And I would have to constantly redefine words. And it was the word elect. I kept coming to, well, that's not what that means. That's not what that means here. That's not what that means here. And finally, God opened my eyes and he said, maybe it means what it seems like it means. So if the overwhelming teaching of Scripture is that of God's election, then on what basis does God elect? Well, we're faced with two, two questions, two possible possibilities here. Does he elect based on what we've done or what we've not done? What we've done or what Christ has done? You have the uh, illustration that makes me want to just have acid reflux in my mouth. God looked through the corridors of time. We talk about this. Why is it always the corridors of time? Why is it never the expressway or the hallway? It's the corridors of time. And he saw who would have faith. Who would respond rightly? There's some words that I would use for that, but they're not probably great for public speaking. But ultimately, this, this line of thought just destroys election altogether. Because if that's true, God's choice follows man's choice. But that's not what we find in Scripture. Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there an injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and harden whomever he wills. Amen? And amen. Romans 9 is the standard. Ephesians 1 is one of my favorites. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heaven and with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I'm just going to stop there. I really just want to read the whole chapter, but we're, we're going to have to just stop. You get the point. Unconditional election is, is not something to hang our heads down about. It's something to hold our heads high and say, God be praised. It exalts God from start to finish. Third, the atonement was particular and certain. Here's where we get into the rub. Read verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Paul, the master wordsmith, he never does anything on accident, but you notice the uptick in the we language there. God's mercy was designed for us. His grace was distributed to us. His purposes were carried out for us. God's mercy has a defined object and a certain satisfaction. Here's where a lot of people will struggle because we don't like the language here. The language of limited atonement makes some people skin fall. It's a biblical teaching. I like the language of particular redemption better. It communicates more clearly what we're saying. First, let's consider the defined object of the atonement. For whom did Christ die? Did Christ die for all? Or did Christ die for the elect? I wish Jesus had said something about that. Alright, he did right here. Uh, John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd... The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So I just picked one scripture. They're numerous. Scripture consistently teaches that Christ died for his sheep. And consider this passage again. There's definite language in it, and it's much more than affirming the consequence. It's not just saying that we happen to be believers so it must be that Christ died for us. No, He's teaching. He's teaching salvation here. We affirm that Christ died for the elect because of the testimony of Scripture as to the object of the atonement. But we also affirm particular redemption because of what the Bible teaches about the results of Christ's resurrection. That's why I say... It has a definite object and a certain satisfaction. They go hand in hand. They go together. Is Christ's atonement? Did his death secure a potential atonement? A possible atonement? Or an actual one? There are three options here. One, Jesus' death was not an actual atonement, only a possible one. He made the atonement possible for all, and it only becomes actual when you choose and when you respond. What's the problem there? It's the first petal in our pretty flower, isn't it? You're not going to respond because you're dead. Two, Jesus' death was an actual atonement for the sins of the elect. Third, Jesus' death was an actual atonement for the sins of all people, and all people will be saved. Only one of those has biblical merit. The first option, we kept it this card because you cannot respond because you're dead. You cannot respond until God has awakened you, has given you the breath of life. The third option is not tenable because Scripture clearly teaches that not all will be saved, that many will be lost, many will be cast into utter darkness. Hell is a real place, it does exist, and many are there and will be there. The only option is that Christ's death was an actual atonement. 
and it was particular in its object. John Owen, in his masterpiece, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, he gives three, three pictures, three possibilities for how God imposed his wrath on Christ. Who he imposed his wrath on, Christ for. He either imposed his wrath on the Son of God for all sins of all men, or all sins of some men, or some sins of all men. Hear that again. God imposed his wrath on Christ for either all sins of all men, universalism, or all sins of some men, biblical Christianity, or some sins of all men, utter nightmare. Because if the last one's true, then all men have some sins to answer for. Thus all men are lost, and we are doomed. A lot of people struggle with this. Limited atonement, particular redemption. They don't like the language. They don't like that it's not nice. It's the most kind and gracious thing that you can imagine. That God would save some. How blessed are we to be a part of that some? Lorraine Bettner compares the debate over this doctrine to, to two bridges. One is broad and has room for everyone. Makes you feel good inside. Nice, warm, and fuzzy. Problem is, it only goes halfway across the immense chasm that it's supposed to span. The other is narrow. It's unpleasant. But it crosses the entire divide. Thought of this way, it's clear which is a better option, isn't it? Better to have a bridge that does the job and permits few than one that inclusively sends all to their doom. Part of the difficulties that we have with this doctrine arise from how we think of the gospel itself. We've been convinced, we've been trained to think of the gospel as an invitation. A mere invitation. I'd really like for you to have Jesus. Would you like to have Jesus? He can make you better. The gospel is much more than a mere invitation. Is it an invitation? Yeah. But it's so much more. The gospel is a command for sinners to repent. Because Jesus is the one true king who has established his kingdom. It's a command to bend the knee. That's not very nice language. It's biblical. Our gospel is an invitation, but it's an invitation and a command wrapped together. Paul points to that in Philippians 2, verse 10. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice what Paul does not say there. Well, it would be best if everyone would bend the knee, and we'd really like to invite you. We're going to have a knee-bending service at the end of the week. 
At the end of all days, there will be a knee-bending celebration, and you're invited to come. Hope you'll make it. Please RSVP. He doesn't say that at all. He says, with a cold face, you will bend the knee. You will either begin bending the knee now and celebrate bending the knee for all eternity, or you will rebel now and you will bend the knee in eternal torment. But you will bend the knee because Christ is King and He will be acknowledged as such. We're invited. Yeah. Not merely invited. Because our invitation carries with it the tone of authority. And too many of us, too many of us are not carrying a tone of authority in our gospel presentation, our gospel declaration. Right. You care if I talk to you about something real quick? It's going to be awkward. I just, you know, I got, I got to do it. Preacher says I need to do it. Right, just, just bear with me for a minute. How many of us have done something along those lines? Heard something along those lines? Walk into the room like Christ is sitting on His throne, and then you will stand before that throne one day. There's an old country preacher once knew whole way through his preaching. He'd kind of squint his eyes, speak real soft, and he'd say, if you'll have it that way. Whole time. That's not the tone of the New Testament gospel proclamation. Christ is king and you will have it that way. One way or the other. Either now or later, you will acknowledge Christ as king. We struggle with particular redemption. Because we struggle with the tone of the gospel. We let we let people question the goodness of God. Because he didn't dare to save all. When we should run headlong, proclaiming that he saved some. I think the angels would have taken that deal. God's gracious call is efficacious. We call this irresistible grace, or as voice says, efficacious grace. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We were dead, and God had the audacity. To breathe life into us. He didn't even ask. He just did. How dare he? When we talk about efficacious grace or irresistible grace, we're talking about, we need to understand there are, there are two calls that we refer to. We refer to the general call. We're familiar with this. It's the call to all persons everywhere to believe in Christ Jesus, repent of their sins, and follow him as the one true king. Nature of this call is ineffectual, and in that it will not all people will respond, and not all people can respond. In fact, if left to themselves, no one would or could respond. Why? Because we're radically depraved. 
There is a general call that goes out. But there is an effectual call as well. We see this in Scripture on numerous occasions. I want to point to two of them. In Acts chapter 9, we see the Apostle Paul going by his Roman name, Saul. You may not have read Acts 9 in a while. Saul wasn't part of a local Bible study group. He wasn't uh, a seeker looking for information about God. He hated Jesus and every one of his followers. Wanted to put them in prison at best. May you see them put to death. When Stephen was stoned to death, it was Saul who stood there and said, Hey, I can hold your coat for you. I mean, you just go right ahead. I'm going to enjoy the show. Anybody got any popcorn? Popcorn part is not canonical. But Paul was, Saul was not looking for the gospel. But Christ came looking for him. Found him. And what did Christ say? I got I got a deal for you, Saul. If you'll stop persecuting me, I'm gonna make something up. He didn't do that. Why are you persecuting me? He said. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Get up and go to the city, and you'll be told what to do there. You're mine now. Now get up and go. Lo and behold, Saul did. <laughs> Willingly. You think of anyone, anyone in any position that might be opposed, that might reject such a calling, it would be that guy, right? That's all we got, though. Because his eyes have been opened to the spiritual realities of Christ. He saw what he did. Another great picture that pictures efficacious grace or irresistible grace is a picture of Lazarus. In John 11, we read that when Jesus had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! It wasn't an invitation. Lazarus, listen, um, I know he's probably comfortable in there. But if you'd like to come out, I'd really, I'd love it if you would. Lazarus, wake up. Come out. And you know what Lazarus did? He got up, he got up, and he threw off his grave clothes, and he came out, and he lived. And you're spiritually dead. And that's exactly what Christ did for you. Called out to you, and he said, Come out from your grave and live. Dead men don't choose to stay in their grave, they just rock the life. They step out, cast aside their grave clothes, and they live. People like to point to this nonsense that, oh, you're going to drag people to heaven, kicking and screaming against their will. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Now, sorry, that's just the nicest way I can put that. You're going to drag me to eternal bliss in the presence of the living God, worshiping Him forever? And you're going to say, i got to be drugged there? No. 
your eyes are open to spiritual realities and you walk willingly wherever he tells you to go. His grace is efficacious. It's irresistible. Finally, we come to this last one, the perseverance of the saints. Your perseverance is certain. You will persevere. You know, the truth is, we get these, these wonderful truths, this system, these five points, this tulip, not from Calvin. He never heard of it. But from Dort. A synod of Dort. Met in 1618, 1619. Calvin has been dead for 60 years. And what happened was, you had some disciples of Arminius who really rejected the teachings of Calvin, and they came up with um, the Remonstrants. They rejected what Calvin taught, but Calvin wasn't the first one to come along with this. Calvin wasn't the first one to come along with these truths. You had great men before him, solid, sound theologians of history, like Luther, a couple decades before Calvin. Augustine, a good 1,200 years before Calvin. And the Apostle Paul, well before any of them. All held to these truths. What Dort did was they responded to the remonstrance postulated by the disciples of Arminius. Just real quick. I think it's helpful for us to understand why we have five points of Calvinism. And why they are what they are. Because there were five points of the remonstrance. And they were as follows. Article 1. Conditional election. Conditional election. We are... uh, They they argued that uh, election is conditioned upon the faith that one puts in Christ. That God elects because He knows beforehand who will have faith in Him. I'm going to read these. I'm going to want to kind of throw up in my mouth the whole time. You're going to want to do the same thing while you hear them. And that's a right and proper response. The second article is unlimited atonement. This asserts uh, that, that Christ died for all, but that salvation is limited to those who believe in Christ. They do affirm some measure of total depravity in Article 3. But I don't know how you can be consistently arguing for total depravity and come up with anything else here. There's not an irresistible grace. There's a prevenient grace. Mankind has the free will to resist the prevenient grace of God. So there you have the picture of God wanting to save someone and man saying, nah. And God's hands are tied. Then you have the conditional preservation of the saints. And this is what they came up with. Will the saints endure until the end? Can they be certain of their salvation? And this was their wise and astute answer. I don't know. I can go either way. We're going to look at that case by case. Look it up. Fifth article of their remonstrance. And you'll shake your head how that was ever taken seriously. And why it took over a year for Dort to condemn it. How foolish and depressing is the man that holds to these errors and attempts to live by them. We have the five points of Calvinism. Because of the five points in the remonstrance. I think we call it the five points of Calvinism because the five points of Dort is not quite as flowing as Calvinism. 
We hold to the perseverance of the saints. And so did the Apostle Paul. When you look at Ephesians chapter 2, get to verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. And then he gets to our great hope that we will endure. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You hear that? We've been saved by grace. We've been created for good works that God has already established that we will walk in. Not that we might walk in, but that we will walk in. Jesus spoke to this as well. So truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The very concept of eternal life in the New Testament teaches us that we will endure. It's not a most of this life life. It's not a very long life. It's eternal life. Eternal life is not eternal life if it's sometimes lost. It sometimes falls away. Hear this. If you have been called by the grace of God from your spiritual deadness, you will endure until the end. 100% full stop. You will endure until the end. I don't like the language of once saved, always saved, because that sounds like a ticket to heaven that you can do whatever you want with. It's unfortunate and unhelpful language. We speak of perseverance. We will endure. That's the language that Paul uses in Romans 8. Romans 8, 35, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Look at what the believer goes through. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Yet, in all these things, we're more than conquerors. Why? Because we're not conquerors in our strength. We're conquerors because Christ lives with us. Because we are the temple of the living God and His presence dwells with us. Through the blessed Holy Spirit. And we don't say, indeed we cannot say, that we don't know how we'll respond until we're faced with certain difficulties. Have you heard that before? Well, you know, I, you never know what you're going to do in a certain situation. You don't know if persecution comes, if you're going to stand up to it, or if you're a wilt under the pressure. You just never can know. That's pseudo-pious nonsense. Instead, I'm going to trust what God says through His Word, and He says repeatedly, you will because I will carry you through it. So will I endure 
during the day of persecution? Absolutely I will. Given to my devices, I will fold like a cheap suit. But my great God and King, who carries me through every trial and tribulation, does not fold. He stands strong and He will carry me through. I will stand. I will endure because of the Spirit who dwells within me. I even know how you'll respond. Famine, nakedness, danger, sword, tribulation, persecution. I know how each and every one of you who are called by Christ Jesus will respond in that day. You will stand. You have confidence that you will stand because Christ will carry you. He has promised that you will endure. And the author of your faith and the finisher. Beginning and the end. That's the gospel that we hold to. And that's the gospel that we proclaim to our children. And we carry them to the end of our days. Teach your children these things. Teach them these things so much that they begin to huff and roll their eyes. What's the tulip say? Oh, this says so. Teach. Teach. You look at Deuteronomy 6. Teach them while you walk, while you sit down, while you lay down. Every aspect, every moment of your day, teach them. Teach them these things. Take steps now to secure future generations of this body by teaching your children, by teaching the young people in this church, by teaching one another and holding fast to what we believe. This is just the first step of one doctrinal point. We must be diligent in everything if we are to preserve the future generations of this church by the grace of God. Father, we thank you that we have great confidence in Jesus Christ. Our salvation is secure because from first to last, He has secured it. Not only let us rejoice in these things, but let us rejoice in these things in our families, in our homes, that we might teach them, we might strengthen them, and we might guard them for future generations. Make this place, this body of believers, make it a body that glorifies you for generations to come. Christ